So, w- when you build gaming <laughs> headphones, <laughs> you don't build them for an optimal, smooth, and <laughs> kind of soothing radio <laughs> voice, which is what you get when you kind of eat your microphone. <laughs> no, uh, you build them for clarity and isolation so that you uh, don't get Cheeto noise in your, in your game. Everyone is sounding great to me. That's true. Yeah. Cool. Alrighty, are we ready? What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome to Beam Radio. I am Meryl Dakin, one of your hosts, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Bruce Tate. Hello, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Lars Bukman. Hello, Lars. Hello, from Varberg, Sweden. Or Tvåker. It depends on how local you want to get, I guess. And I am joining from Brooklyn, New York. And the first thing we're going to do is shout out our sponsors who also happen to be our two hosts. So I will send it back to Bruce at Groxio to see what's going on with you guys. Yeah, a couple of things. First, we have a live view training coming up. So um, check out the site, grox.io, if you'd like to join. We also are working, are doing our third pass through our Elixir content. And people have said they're pretty excited about what, what they're seeing. And we, we've just introduced a section on enumerables where we get into the enumerable and collectible protocol. So if you want to see that kind of stuff, check us out. Thanks, Bruce. And now we'll go to Lars at Underjord. Good attempt. Thank uh, you. I have been practicing, not very much. <laughs> yeah, so Underjord.io uh, currently still working uh, on new pieces of the Unpacking Elixir series that I think people have been enjoying quite well. They've gone on the orange side, as, uh, at least. So that, that's how you know people are uh, interacting with it. <laughs> Blogging, you don't get a lot of feedback. Um, on the kind of business end, I am very actively looking for Elixir companies that are hiring. Not for myself, uh, necessarily, but to actually help them find uh, Elixir devs. It's a weird market right now. Uh, You can certainly find a lot of Elixir devs, but finding the ones you actually need, the particular ones you're looking for, bit messier. There's there's a lot of churn out in the market. It's a really hard market for for devs uh, currently, which is kind of unfortunate. But yeah, if your company is trying to hire any particular Elixir position, uh, I'm pretty sure I can help make sure you get good candidates. And that's good for me, it's good for the candidates, and it's good for your company. So uh, reach out if you want to. Thank you, Lars. Um, I'm going to continue my practicing of the company name uh, for next time. But before that, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. I'm very excited to introduce Jenny Bramble. Jenny, could you give us a little intro about you and where you're calling in from? And yeah, anything that you'd like to talk about today? Absolutely. So my name is Jenny Bramble. I work at a company called Papa, where we are working to provide better health outcomes for particularly seniors, but everyone by providing companionship and handling some of the tasks that I would do for my mom and dad if I didn't live four hours away. Speaking of living four hours away from my mom and dad, uh, I am in Hillsboro, North Carolina, literally out in the middle of the woods. Uh, This is a podcast, so you can't see it, but I am surrounded by trees. It is amazing out here. Uh, I'm director of engineering at Papa, and I came up through testing. I accidentally did DevOps for about six months, and that wasn't great for me. But uh, when I got into testing, that's where I found my, my real love of software. Awesome. I can see the trees because I am looking at Jenny's background. I can also see these fabulous ghost earrings Jenny's wearing. So before we get into anything uh, Elixir, I would love for Jenny to talk to us a little bit about her ghost earrings and the holiday that she is wearing them for, because we had some interesting convo about that before we started recording. So again, y'all can't see me and um, I feel bad for you because I look amazing. Uh, (laughs) So I'm actually very goth. Um, 
I have like the black lipstick, the black eyeliner, not, not on right now, but I have all that. That is my thing. So Halloween is absolutely my season. And I refer to it as uh, goth Christmas because it's the same kind of excitement. You get presents. Uh, someone at one point asked me, well, if it's goth Christmas, who is goth Santa? And obviously it's the crow. <laughs> so I have tons of spooky earrings. I also have tons of Christmas earrings because Christmas is also my favorite season. Um, yeah, today's our little tiny happy ghosts. Yesterday it was uh, light up pumpkins. I love it. I love it so much. I think at the end, uh, we'll have to return to this for spooky picks. Uh, I've been exclusively watching scary movies since the beginning of September. So I am very excited to hear about anything that y'all are watching, reading, listening to, uh, especially Jenny, who seems to be the queen of, uh, I don't want to say queen of the dead, uh, but queen of this holiday. Um, so before we get back to that exciting segment, um, let's hop in to Elixir. Jenny, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Elixir, where you are with it now, who introduced you, what, what made you want to start using it in your work? Oh man, I think it's time for me to confess that uh, not a developer. Plot uh, twist. So, <laughs> plot twist. A tester has now snuck onto two Elixir podcasts. Um, <laughs> Perfect. So about, oh, what, six, seven years ago, a coworker of mine said, dude, I just found this new language. It's so fun. I love it. It, it like sings to me. And I'm like, that's, you're so precious. Uh, and he ended up leaving that job to go work because uh, we were doing like Java or something boring. He ended up leaving that job to go work with Elixir. And he's like, man, this is so great. You should really learn to code. And I'm like, not going to do that. Uh, he worked a couple of jobs with this. And then uh, at Papa, he said, hey, why don't you come over and be director of engineering with me here? You can be director of quality engineering. You'll get to start your own QA group. And I have realized that this was an attempt to get me to learn Elixir. Uh, so I did sign up for Bruce's uh, Elixir course so that I can actually learn Elixir. <laughs> so while I don't know Elixir, I don't write the code, I can read it. And I do a lot of testing around Elixir. And I have never seen a language community that is so excited to exist and so excited to write this kind of code. Every time I've interviewed an Alexa developer, it has been like a breath of fresh air as far as, as just how excited they are. And it reminds me a lot of the test community. Because if you find a tester who's really excited about testing, she's just going to talk about that forever. And Elixir devs are really similar. So I see a lot of similarities in the two communities. And it's really drawn me into wanting to learn more about the language itself. Secret tester. Offered a director of engineering or engineering manager job as a trick to try to get them into Elixir. That's that's a heck of a twist. It, it's a long time. I'm still actually caught up time. on I'm still <laughs> caught up on Goth Christmas because I did not know Are you talking about the crow from the movie? Yes. yes. Okay, so him crawling down your chimney. That's right, the... exactly. All right, all right. And if you're very good, he'll bring you presents. And if you're very bad, well, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. Yeah, uh, it's not going to end well. <laughs> yeah, kind of makes sense. Naughty list now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we definitely do not have a rule against non-developers on the show. Quite the opposite. <laughs> so you're very, very welcome on board with your with your testing experience. Uh, I think this has more chances to teach us things than, than most of our episodes just because it's a little bit outside of our respective wheelhouses. Is that how you say that? Wheelhouses. Uh, not sure. I think that's exactly how you say it, Lars. Okay. I do have a question for you, though. So we normally do get to the Elixir journey, but what I'd like to get is your testing journey and how that kind of took you from from early in your career into into the management ranks and how that process has been for you? Oh, this is an exciting story. One of the interesting things about testers is that we don't generally have 
a, a college path for testers. Generally, people fall into testing. Testers can be dental assistants, nurses, chefs, developers, basically anyone can go into testing and whatever experience you've had before changes how you test and it changes your outlook on things. For me personally, uh, I wanted to go into computers because my mom was in computers and I realized uh, for the American listeners, you can generally get health insurance if you're working at a tech company. And I thought that sounded like a real solid life plan. So I went to college for computer science, decided I didn't like it. It took me 13 years to graduate because I really don't like school. Uh, I did tech support for Red Hat, uh, for Red Hat Linux. I was the frontline tech support person. Then I was the team lead. Then I was the manager of the group for a while. And when I left that job, I took a couple other tech support kinds of jobs because I really love people. Like the, the way the human computer interaction moment is my favorite thing about computers and people. When the metal machines and the meat machines meet, beautiful, crazy, wonderful things can happen and unexpected things. I realized support was kind of a dead end job. I wasn't going to be able to get the kinds of things that I wanted out of that career. So I was like, well, let's see what else is out there. Well, I'll try DevOps. Bad choice. Not a DevOps person. Uh, Y'all can keep that one. So instead, I started going into QA uh, and I, the way I rationalized it to myself, because, again, I, I really love support, was that QA is like support, but before people get the product. Yeah. So you really have to have a good idea of who your customers are, what kinds of things they want to do, how you can interact with the software. You have to have this. I, I say uh, testers hold the mental model of the system in their minds. We see the big picture. And a lot of times developers just see the thing that they're working on, the requirements they're doing, just really zeroed in on that. So we can provide that bigger picture in a way that completes it. So I did a lot of support there, did a lot of testing, and ah, I really love humans. Being able to manage people was the natural next step in my career journey, not because I wanted to be paid more or have a bunch more influence. Well, because I did want to have a lot more influence, but it was a natural step for me because I realized I can start injecting quality into the entire organization by becoming a manager, by becoming a director. I can really start looking at this overarching idea of quality in our systems, quality in our people, quality in our processes and quality in our code. So wait a minute, yeah, Jenny. So I, I want to I get to something that you said. Are you telling me that you joined Red Hat and not a company that was acquired by Red Hat? Oh, no, my dude. I was at legit Red Hat when we were under a thousand people. <laughs> I worked directly so you two for or three Red people. Hat. Yeah. <laughs> that joined through actual, the actual traditional means rather than acquisition. Exactly, like exactly. Uh, which is why I don't work for IBM now. <laughs> Red Hat was actually on NC State's campus at the time, so it was really easy to get over there and go to a bunch of their career fairs and make a splash on the, their uh, manager of support really liked me at the time. So he's like, hey, come work for me instead of going to school. And I'm like, actually, let's do that. That sounds way more fun than calculus. Jenny, I feel like we could have a whole episode about this, but when you were talking about injecting quality into teams, I think that that's such an interesting way of framing how you moved from your testing work into a management part. I, I want to know, maybe at a high level or if there's something specific you want to pull out, what kind of things you brought from that mindset that you felt were kind of a unique perspective coming into management and why that was useful for you as you transition to that part of your career? Ooh, that's a good question. It's hard to have statistics for QA. It's hard for anybody in software development to have like a statistic that says if you're doing good. I mean, lines of code is a terrible statistic because you get what you measure. And it's the same for QA, but even worse, because when we don't provide any artifacts, any documents, it means everything's great. And it, we, maybe we didn't do anything. Maybe we did a ton of things. 
So one of the things that I've brought into kind of management is, is thinking about what does it mean to fairly grade people? What does it mean to create an environment in which quality can thrive? So I don't want to look at my developers and say, hey, I'm going to judge you on how many tickets you've done, how many lines of code you're you've done. I want to say, what is the environment you've created? How, do we have a space in which quality can thrive and in which I feel like y'all can do your best work? So that means strong psychological safety so that the testers and developers can have conversations about their code and so that developers can say, hey, this is a bad idea. Like from day one, this is a bad idea. So psychological safety. I want to have uh, high morale because happy people make good code. Just if you are upset, if you're having problems, that's not going to be uh, setting you up to do your best work. So go on PTO, go get a coffee, go hang out with your cat, whatever. I want you to have high morale. And I really want people to, I, I say, uh, have space to be human. One of the things that I've really pulled from my QA time and from my support time is that people are people are people. If you don't have space to be human, you can't do your best work. Uh, so one of the things that one of my, my folks said to me recently is, hey, uh, my, my babysitter has the COVID and I can't work my normal hours. And I'm like, cool, man. Do you need to take time off? No? Okay. Well, Amy, if you work four hours in the morning and then four hours after midnight, more power to you, my dude. Like, take care of your family and take that piece of mental load off of you so that you can have this space to do really good work and the kind of work you want to do. Um, the other piece is, is letting people solve problems. I don't, I don't want to walk over to somebody and say, this is exactly what you need to do to solve this problem. I want to walk over to someone and say, here's a problem. Have fun, kids. Like, come back to me. We'll talk through the solutions. We'll do all that stuff. But I'm not an Elixir developer. My seniors are Elixir developers. My staff are Elixir developers. I expect them to be able to say, here's the solution that I would use. Or here's two solutions. Let's pick one. Uh, I, I say be playful. I want my people to have space to be human, to be playful around the code, to really think through stuff and work through it. I feel like I pull that a lot from my QA experience is one of the, the two types of testing that we do most often is exploratory and ad hoc, which is just wandering through the code, wandering through our features, seeing what's happening. And there is an element of play to that. And I think developers need that just as much as I do. That was a so, lot. <laughs> so Jenny, you've, you've come up, you've come up into the testing ranks at the beginning of and through a time when there have been two increasing narratives. Now, one is kind of, let's let our engineers test. <laughs> and another one is let's automate more and more and more. Um, so have you seen um, in, in your, in your positions, have you seen this, this tension between um, like minimalizing a testing role and in the automation in the increasing automation of a testing role and um, and how have you dealt with those problems? Oh, good one. Let's look at the developer piece first, because I feel like there's a lot of groups out there right now that don't have testers. They don't have someone that is a subject matter in testing. So the developers are expected to do testing. Cool. I don't make cakes without a recipe. You can't just tell somebody to do something and not give them an idea of how to do it. And I think whenever we say things like the developers will do the testing, we're putting people at a disadvantage to doing their best work. Um, I just did a, well, not to toot my own horn, but I just did a fantastic talk about black box testing techniques. And one of the reasons that I wanted to bring that talk to the developer world is because I'd given it at work. And one of my developers was like, what? That? That's so easy. I could put that in a unit test. I'm like, yes, if you take this, this boundary value analysis theory and you apply it to a unit test, I don't have to do it as a tester. Now we've got more stability in the code. You've learned something, you know, a little bit more about how we think. Because again, developers tend to be very, very focused on the feature that they're creating. 
writing code is very hard. It takes up your entire mind and you love to chew on it and play with it and think about it. But that doesn't leave a lot of space for the what ifs, for the what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? What if someone isn't at their best? There's not a lot of space for that. But if I can teach you some test techniques, then I can empower the developers to do more testing on their own. So I guess the short version of that is, I think it's great that developers are doing testing. I think we're putting them at a disadvantage because we're not teaching them how to test. Jenny, this might speak to your point. Uh, can you just briefly tell us what black box testing is? Oh my gosh. I don't know. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> the ElixirConf 2023 talk is not out yet. So I think by the way, seen it. Yeah, it was an awesome talk. Thank you. It's, this is what I mean. Like if I tell, if I say to a group of developers, black box testing techniques, y'all are like, huh, that is, that is a set of words you could say. You don't know what it means. So you don't know what testing is. We break testing into different styles of testing. There's white box testing, which is testing that has full knowledge of the code. And that's going to be things like automation, things like unit tests. Uh, a lot of API testing is full knowledge of the code. You know exactly what the code is doing, so you're testing with that knowledge. Black box testing is test techniques that generally do not consider the code that is being written. Um, you can use these techniques for anything. doesn't matter what the code is. The code is a black box to you. We don't do that. We call them black box test techniques because that's what the world has called them since the beginning of time. What we actually do is more gray box. We take the black box techniques, we apply them to code that we know something about because the way code is written should affect how we're testing it. And that's one of the reasons that I think developers can do testing themselves because they do have intimate knowledge of the code. They just also need intimate knowledge of some methodology to go with it. Did that, did that cover it? It generally makes it clearer to me, but I would love an example if you have one in mind of what it would be like to test something without knowing the code that it was going into. Yeah. Um, everything we do is testing. Uh, every, like, I test the limits of how late I can get up in the morning and still make it to work on time. Thanks, working from home, it's five minutes. Whenever you are doing something like trying to log into a site and it throws up an error, that's kind of testing. You don't know why the code is throwing that error. You just know that it threw an error. Um, sure, you could do an inspect. You could look at it. You could probably dive in somehow. But black box testing would just be typing a password in that's wrong and seeing an error and saying, oh, that's the error I expected. Typing the correct password, seeing an error, being like, hmm, not what I thought was going to happen. And then saying, hey, this is what I found. Gray box testing is when you put that in and then you say, huh. It's interesting that putting the correct password in through an error, let me look a little bit and see why that might have happened so the developers and I can have a longer conversation about it. Did that clarify? Yes, thank you. Perfect. I'm used to talking to test uh, audiences, so <laughs> I forget that sometimes the language I use isn't common language across software development lifecycle. Yeah, there was another term you used earlier. It was something like boundary analysis. Mm. And that was boundary another one that analysis. I was like, I don't, I don't know that one either. <laughs> boundary value analysis is looking at values at the boundaries. So if you've got a range of like one to five, you want like if one to five had a discount and then six to seven had a different discount, you would look at five and six at the boundaries. Um, this is where we find our edge cases, because it's at the edge. Uh, nice. Follow me for more dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when you're talking about employing these kinds of techniques alongside your management style and what you've grown into from testing into engineering management, um, you, you spoke earlier about making an environment where testers and developers work best together. Um, yeah, I, I'm interested in what that looks like. I, I think that you've expressed an idea of what that is in terms of the psychological safety of being able to talk through things and work on it. Are there any kind of specific like rituals that they have or ways in which they're 
often working together, whether that's with code or in person, um, to make those kinds of things easier and yeah. higher quality. Oh man, this is, I think I'm going to tell a story on myself. Uh, so back in the day, back when I was a baby tester, I used to have a, uh, I found a bug dance. So anytime I would find a defect, I would go over to the developer and do my little dancey dance. That is cruel. That is mean. That is not something we do. That is pitting testers against developers. The more bugs I find, the better I'm doing. But that means you're doing worse. And if I don't find any bugs, now you're winning. So I'm going to try even harder to find the dumbest bugs. And by setting up this, this adversarial relationship, we're putting ourselves again at a disadvantage from being able to really do our best work. Developers and testers are not enemies. We are partners. We are co-creators. We are all going for the same end result. I don't want you to write bad code. You don't want me to nitpick, oh, the pixels are wrong on this. That doesn't help anyone. So when we are, are talking about developer and test relationships, we have to take the antagonistic words out of it. Testers don't break things because that implies that developers have created something that we're going to ruin. Like we're out to ruin you. And that's cruel. That's mean. That's nasty. I want to work together with developers to create something great. I don't want my developers to be defensive whenever I'm walking over to their desk. I want them to say, oh, Jenny's coming over. I can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about because any bug I find and can talk to you about as a human person is going to make you a better coder. It's going to make you a better developer. We, we've set this up as conflict and it needs to be a conversation. Uh, a buddy and I have a talk called The Deal where we talk about developers and testers coming together. Oh, actually the guy that got me into Elixir. <laughs> he and I have a talk about it's the deal. So uh, test keeps devs safe and devs supports tests. By doing the fit and finish, developers can let give me the space to look for bigger, nastier bugs. By standing up for me in meetings, developers can help test have a bigger voice. And test's job is to be a safety net. We are here to make sure that bad things don't happen to our users and bad things don't happen to our developers. We are absolute partners in this. And if I stand up in a meeting and I say, wow, y'all really screwed up. I can't believe you made a bug this terrible. Like, that's awful. That's not protecting you. That's not supporting you. And if you stand up in a meeting and say, I can't believe Jenny missed this bug and let it go out to production and hurt all of these people, that's hurting me. We're fighting now. And we should never fight. We should always be able to come together, bring our two completely different perspectives. I'll bring my pessimism, you bring your optimism, and together we get a beautiful view of the world. I see the big picture, you see the small picture. We combine that and we have a real sense of the quality of the application, how we can work together, how we can get to the utopia of perfect software, which doesn't exist. Um, yeah. It, it needs to be a partnership. It needs to be a, a conversation. If I have a developer who is being antagonistic towards test, that is a corrective moment. That's me sitting down and saying, hey, I want to talk to you about your relationship with, with Jenny. What is the, what's the problem here? Is it a communication style? Is it past trauma from jobs? What's going on? And if I have a tester who is being antagonistic towards a developer, that's, again, a corrective moment. Do Are we looking at past job trauma? Are we looking at communication issues? Are you just a bad fit for this team? It's, it's all communication in the end. It's all this partnership, this working together. We are going to the same place. We are headed for the same thing. We want the same thing. We should work together to get them. 
So dance before leaving your desk and going over to the other one. Right, right. Do the dance first. Yeah, do the dance in your head. Don't do the dance in front of anybody. <laughs> well, work from home, you can probably do it just before logging the issue, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> and logging the issue is an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of the bugs that my people find, they never log because I'm not judging you on how many bugs you're logging. I'm judging you on how you're working with your developers. I would much rather you say, hey, wow, this is, uh, the app is crashing. That's bad. Let me sit down with one of our mobile developers and go through why it's crashing and have him fix it like as I'm sitting there. You're gonna learn a lot about development. They're gonna learn a little bit about testing and you're gonna have a better product in the end. Actually, I'm super curious about what you think is kind of the ideal way to integrate test and dev work because it doesn't quite sound like oh yeah we've uh, we're done with the sprint now here you can have it uh and then at some point later we'll we'll address all the issues that i guess you'll find uh, that doesn't sound like it would be the approach but i'm not sure i mean the ideal way is just to have testers uh developers do the testing <laughs> The farther away from the keyboard that bugs are found, the more expensive they are. So if you catch a defect in a unit test, like before you even push it, that is way cheaper than if a user finds the defect a month later or 10 minutes later, depending on how good your continuous integration is. So what I want to see is the kind of relationship where a developer can say, hey, Jenny, I'm working on this feature. What would you do to test it? And I come over and I'd be like, oh, I would do these couple of things probably. I don't have to spend more than five minutes on it. Just an idea of, oh yeah, I would probably look at this. And that's an interesting feature because I think it relates to this other thing. Hmm, yeah, that's, that's probably what I would do. And give the developers an idea of what I would do to test. The, the answer key to the, the test, right? Um, I like to see this in refinement. I like to see this in planning. I like to hear anybody on the team ask, how are we going to test that so that we can put some of that in the story as we're writing it? And then when a tester finds a bug, the first thing I want them to think is not, yes, someone is screwed up and I am the savior of the day. Glorious. I'm amazing. I want them to think, What's the context of this? Why do I think this bug might be here? And when I go talk to my developers about it, let me bring an idea to them. Let me say, hey, I found this bug. Was I doing it the way you expected? Did you expect something different? When people ask me what testing is, and this is my favorite question for uh, people when I'm interviewing for testers is, what is testing to you? In a sentence, what is testing? And for me, it's verifying the expectations of all the stakeholders for the system under test or helping reset those expectations. I have a way that I expect the system to work. You have a way the system, you think the system's gonna work. Product has a way, business has a way, users have a way. So when I'm testing and something doesn't meet my expectations, it's not because it's wrong. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just not what I expect. So let me go to the other people in the system, particularly developers at this point, and say, what did you expect? Is this what you expected? Am I interacting with it in a way you expected or am I interacting in a different way? Bugs are not always bugs. Sometimes they're just misaligned expectations. That is such a cool uh, way of framing it. I, I really love the idea that throughout this process of testers and developers working closely together as like an aligned team, there's this continuous like education and learning between the two because they're sharing, you know, the way you're saying a tester can come to a developer and say like, this is what I was thinking of it as the developer now has this greater understanding and perspective of ways in which their user base can be using the feature that they're working on and then carry that into the next piece of work. Um, and that is very cool and very important to me, like, as, you know, in small or big organizations that these various parts work um, in this aligned way to have the shared vision and like shared vocabulary around how we're going to get there. 
and I, I've also seen this in like, uh, we don't have testers at, at NOC yet, um, but in terms of just our product and our sales and, you know, our marketing, uh, getting to share their perspectives on things helps me as an engineer understand where to go um, and aligns our vision. I, I think it's an amazing way to create high-performing teams, but I've never really thought about it in the way that you're describing with testers and engineers. And I, I think that's such a cool way of framing it. Um, it's not really a question for you. It's just saying, I really appreciate <laughs> that perspective. One of the worst things, the, the biggest disservice that we have ever done to ourselves as far as developing software is isolating engineers. We have this idea of, oh, I'll just let her go off in the corner. She'll make some magic and then we'll come back. And sure, people, developers tend to be a little more introverted than, you know, the classic extrovert here. And you do need your alone time. But by isolating people and saying, well, you're only going to hear from product, product will give you this list of requirements uh, and then test, you can just throw it over to them. By isolating people like that, we've removed their agency, we've removed their empowerment, and we've removed their ability to be playful and to offer up solutions and not just lines of code. And I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to deal with in about five years when the people that we are currently isolating start to become senior and staff level. We're going to have to start, and I'm having to do this now with some of the people that are around me, we have to pull them out of that and say, yes, I can give you a problem to fix, but I want to give you the context around that problem to make sure that we're pulling the right solution in. And my favorite example of this is I had a person, I'm like, hey, I need you to make a, a complaint system. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to make a complaint system. And they put in a section where you could have a comment. And they did it uh, 255 characters. Boom, that's your comment. Uh, I don't know if you've met people, but they don't like that. <laughs> and immediate complaints started. We need more space. We need more space. We need more space. And the developer like bumped it up a little here and there. It's like, oh, I need to do this completely differently. And if we hadn't isolated the person and we said, hey, here's your users. Here's what they're doing now we would have had that fixed earlier. That wouldn't have even been a problem. So introducing developers to the people that they're working, they're creating and designing for, giving them the context. As a manager, as a director, a lot of my job is providing the context around why we're solving the problems we're solving is I am not the smartest girl in the room. I would love to be. No, no, I don't. That's too much pressure. Uh, I would like to hire the smartest person in the room <laughs> and then give them something interesting to chew on and think about and give them enough context that they can do the things that are meaningful to them and that they can have a lot of joy and excitement in their, in their jobs. So true. I like to be thinking about engineers and ways that they can get closer to the customer, get closer to the quality part of their organization and, and really um, have, have a view of the greater enterprise. I'd like to ask you a question about what you've seen in other environments and other programming language environments that enables the work that you do versus what you see in the Elixir space. Um, are there some tools that, that Elixir provides that make things um, helpful? And is there anything that you think that we're missing that could, that could really help you do what you do? Ooh, I love that. Let's see. Uh, the unit testing in Elixir is fantastic. It's very readable, very wonderful. Uh, I find that uh, so we, we have a couple of different languages over here at Papa. We're React Native, we're Elixir, we're React React. Um, I think we accidentally have something in Python. But of all of them, our best tested code base is our Elixir code base. It's the easiest to read. It's the easiest to get things into. Uh, and that I think is really very important. I, I insist that the test team sit down with developers and read through the unit tests. They have to. Like, okay. I say have to, but <laughs> in case you're listening testers, you should be reading the unit tests. You should be able to independently understand what's going on. And I find Elixir very readable in, in that way. As far as what would 
and there's there's pieces of the language that we don't have to be as concerned about like performance generally fine um what is missing what about the property-based tools in elixir have you seen um have you seen your team start to take a take a bite out of that apple yet people have been talking about it but i haven't been involved in those conversations i will bring it up in our back-end community meeting though yeah, it's kind of cool because when you talk about the boundary analysis, it's rather than saying, okay, here's the expectations, here's um, here's our experiment, and what are the results? Um, you kind of reframe the ideas as creating a bunch of random values that, um, and then kind of feeding them through your system, and then um, think about properties that must be true. Um, and I think that it's interesting, especially in the Elixir space, because the guy who created those techniques came from um, you know, came from the Haskell world, but worked closely with the um, Erlang community. His name is John Hughes. And the tool is called QuickCheck, and I'm a big fan of it. So plug for John and QuickCheck. That sounds amazing. That is exactly the kind of thing that empowers developers to do better testing. Because like Meryl was saying, not all groups have testers. One of my prouder moments at Baba is whenever I am able to look at a team and say, I am taking the manual tester off of your team because I believe that you can be independently successful in your testing without an expert, without a dedicated expert. We'll always do a consult. But yeah, tools like that are, are incredible, and I would love to see more of that. Something I'm curious about that always pops up in, um, in testing conversations, I think, is web automation testing. And my experience with that is that it is a mess really hard to get right really can be really really good value for making sure that your stuff is not completely broken but also the flakiest thing i've ever had to try to write tests in what has your experience been with like web automation testing like all these playwrights and your seleniums and all of that we do it badly that's, that's my experience. We take people who don't have a basis in healthy, clean programming concepts, and we say, okay, go write some very influential code. Good luck, team. The developers are going to ignore you now. And then we take people who are very, very good at writing amazing, beautiful code, and we don't teach them the concepts they need to do good testing. So we have two groups that are not set up to do their best work. In general, UI automation does not have to be flaky. There are ways you can do it that will remove a lot of the flakiness from these tests. We don't teach those techniques. We stumble upon them and then hoard them and we don't tell other people about them. This is a disadvantage of, of the testing community right now is that our coding practices are poor and they are new. Automation is still a very new discipline compared to the, the length of time that anything else has been around. And we're not pulling in the good code practices and we're not pushing out the knowledge that we have around making things less flaky. I believe very strongly that in order to have a successful web automation experience, developers and testers have to work very, very closely together. We need to know good coding practices, we need to know good testing practices, and we need to be able to talk to the test community at large and say, who has solved this problem and how have you solved it? And a lot of times when we go to solve that problem, it's not going to be solved in the UI automation. It's gonna be solved in the application code how we're putting things together, how we're naming stuff, how we're building pages. A lot of that can help reduce the flakiness, but you often don't know about it. So the testers are trying to work with what they've got. Developers are trying to work with what they've got. And because our teams haven't really come together well, we end up with a lot of flakiness. Yeah, so uh, well, my answer is yeah. everyone's doing it wrong all the time. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, my experience there is is definitely a lot of 
a lot of that, like, oh, you're applying this to an existing system where you essentially don't have access to change the things you would ideally like to see. Just a slight tweak could make it like a, the test 500% better. Uh, that would be ideal, but you don't have the access and it it's a tricky thing to, to get done. But I've also, as a developer, built these tests and like, yeah, this seems sensible. I think this should work. And then it's there's just weird browser quirks and all that stuff yeah. that you keep running into um, that makes it just genuinely hard. So like for people out there who think I'm not a very good programmer because I'm a tester trying to write web automation. It's like, no, that's, it's actually hard. <laughs> like I've used Selenium. I've used robot framework. I've used uh, mm -hmm. Wallaby under Elixir. Uh, I've used some playwright, I think, and some uh, uh, other JavaScript ones. I've had Cypress problems is the with new all hotness. of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had problems with all of them. So I think if you're out there and struggling, uh, so am I. <laughs> and I've done a lot of development, if that that's any help. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that comes down to not treating automation like real code. Um, automation code, UI automation code is production code hands down. It should be treated the same. It should go through the same kind of code review and it should be held to the same standards. And we don't always do that. So we treat it more like production code. We will have better automation. Uh, Jenny, I am sorry to say that we are coming to time because this has been such a great conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot and I'm really happy there's people like you being managers out there and directors. So uh, before we wrap up, I want to get back to the most important thing on today's agenda, which is uh, spooky season picks, uh, goth Christmas picks. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to really think about it, but Jenny, if you have something to start us off, I would love to hear what media or activities you're suggesting to people these days. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge Hayride fan. Love a good corn maze. The movies that I really gravitate towards are definitely horror. Um, the new Hellraiser from last year, actually very good. Love oh. that. Love all. I do love all the Hellraiser movies. Yes, all of them. Almost all of them. Uh, I just that takes watched... a lot of energy to love all <laughs> of them. I think. Uh, I just watched Cadaver, which is on Netflix. I really liked that. The, like the concept, very very good. Execution. But the concept was good and the visuals are fantastic. Uh, and I'm 15 minutes from the end of the invitation, so no spoilers. Uh, but really enjoying that one as well. So it feels very modern. Like it's a very modern kind of, of horror story. Cool. Uh, Bruce or Lars, do y'all have anything queued up? So, yeah. Yeah. Bruce, you can go. Yeah. In the terms of horror, I, I would, um, just the news. <laughs> that's fair. That's really Actual fair. spit take from Jenny. That's, <laughs> that's a win. Uh, yeah. I don't get to watch movies, especially not scary ones. So my wife is uh, kind of sensitive to that kind of thing. So even once the kids are down, it's like, nah, nah. Um, and it's not my my primary genre anyway. So the only the only sort of uh, thing I've done for the spooky season is that I have started adjusting my display name on particular slacks where the where that's the appropriate vibe. Uh, and so figure out your kind of ghoulish name. Uh, there's also much more convenient ways to make a spooky avatar these days. You can probably just go on like OpenAI and like slot your picture in and say make it spooky, and then you're good. Uh, so things have become easier. Thank you, Lars and Bruce. Uh, I have been uh, really excited about my spooky movie list this year, and um, my favorite newish thing I've seen. It's not new, but it's called Cat's Eye. It's a movie that is three vignettes of Stephen King's short stories. And oh. it is 
pretty fun. I was not like expecting a lot. There's a lot of like horror vignettes out there that are just sort of B movies. Um, and this is not like great quality, but man, it was a really fun movie. And it inspired me to make another list of movies about cats who are heroes in movies. Uh, so yeah, there is no animal harm in the movie. There is threat of it, but I just want to say that for people who are worried about that, um, I would not recommend a movie like that. Okay. Um, so it is very fun though. And it's like a fun little spooky plus like, you know, exciting adventure movie for people who are interested. Um, when you started that title, I thought you were just going to say cats, like the, the most <laughs> that's recent <my> movie. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad pick for a horror movie. It, <laughs> it's it's very disconcerting. Or just cats in general. That's a great, great Halloween yeah animal um all right well thank you so much uh say goodbye to our wonderful guest jenny thank you so much for being here today is there anything that you'd like to plug before we let you go and where can we find you online thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun and i appreciate being able to just invite myself on the podcast that was great uh you can find me, Jenny Does Things, on Twitter. That's pretty much the only place I'm active. You can try and send me a LinkedIn invite, but I only open LinkedIn like once a year. So Twitter is the best place to get me. As far as upcoming stuff, I've got a conference in Germany outside of Berlin, Potsdam. That's going to be mid-November. I'll be speaking about uh, how testers can get involved in incidents and how we can help resolve them quicker. I will also be at Code Match in January. That's going to be a lot of fun. That is my other uh, favorite developer conference. Very cool. Uh, I'm excited to hear about both of those things. Um, <laughs> Lars, anything you want uh, to say before we wrap up? Uh, nothing more than it was a pleasure to have you on, and it's nice to nice to get a mix in what we're talking about. Uh, this was very very good. I learned a few things. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. Y'all are y'all are great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thanks to everybody listening to this episode. And we will see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>